Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who finished his big league career as the most successful base dealer, ranked by percentage in Major League Baseball history. He played for six teams from 1979 to 2002 and was best known for his 13 seasons with the Montreal Expos. He was regarded as one of the best leadoff hitters and base runners in baseball history. He was a 1986 National League batting champion, a seven-time All-Star, four-time stolen base champion. He has three World Series rings, two as a player with the New York Yankees, Yankees. One is a coach with the Chicago White Sox. He was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2017. It is a pleasure to welcome the man they called The Rock, Tim Raines of WLIE Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Tim. How's it going, guys? It, you know, listen, it can't get any better you know, than, than speaking to a 2017 Hall of Fame inductee, that's for sure. You know, Thanks a lot. It's interesting because you look back at it, and you were a multi-sport athlete at Seminole High School, lettering in football, basketball, baseball, and track. You're the star running back for Coach Jerry Posey, but you quit football after your junior year to focus on baseball, even though you had close to 100 you know, schools vying for you and offering you scholarships. Why baseball over football at that point in your life? Well, I wasn't really sure. You know, I thought about, you know, I had talked to a couple of teams uh, after my junior year, and they showed some uh, interest in maybe me being a high draft pick. So I thought about that, and I felt like, uh, you know, if I'm going to do this, uh, I need to, to be healthy. And I thought that I wasn't going to play football this year, that year. But actually, uh, as it turned out, I missed the first game, but I ended up going back <laughs> and playing uh, that year and uh, finishing up my senior year uh, playing football. You know, looking at your high school career, you oh, stole insane. home plate. Yeah. So home a hundred times. That's crazy. How, how does that happen? Don't they realize to watch out for you that you're going to steal home? How did you manage to steal home a hundred times in your high school career? Well, um, you know, I just want to play baseball. It was, it was, it was just fun, you know. Out uh, like playing on the playground, you know, it's out there uh, competing, but actually uh, having fun doing it. Uh, I enjoyed baseball. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a game that I enjoyed playing. But my favorite sport was football. I kind of felt like uh, you get a lot more fans in football than you did in baseball. <laughs> Yeah, AJ mentioned the 100 stolen bases, but, you know, in your junior year, you hit 540, you have a 23-game hitting streak, you share, this is the best part for me, MVP with your brother Ned. You also played Legion Ball with your brother, and your coach on that team was your dad. So I have to imagine you have some really great memories of that. So how special was it to play for your dad alongside your brother? Well, actually, you know, playing with my brother, we kind of did that throughout, you know, our whole childhood, you know, career. I mean, he's a year older, so we found ourselves playing together quite a bit, all the way from, like, Little League up to high school. So uh, not only did we play baseball together, we played football together. He was the fullback, I was the running back, so he was my lead blocker on just about every play that I ran in football. But... um it uh, it was something we had done our whole lives. I mean, you know, we you know, a year apart, 
uh, growing up together, doing everything together. So it was only fitting that we got a chance to do just about everything from, you know, from being born to uh, leaving high school. Unbelievable story. You know, you're taken in the fifth round of the 1977 Major League Baseball draft by the Montreal Expos. And what's so cool is when you go back in history and you look at that, there were 105 players taken ahead of you. Only three players played more games than you that were drafted ahead of you, and that was Paul Molitor, Harold Baines, and Ozzie Smith. So I'd say the Expos did really well at 106. What do you remember most about draft day? Well, actually, I thought I was going to be drafted in the first round by the Dodgers. They decided not to take me. So when I ended up going uh, in the fifth uh, with the Expos, uh, I hadn't really talked to anyone from the Expos. So I was like, I was kind of like uh, a little upset that I didn't get drafted any higher. Uh, but what it did, it, it, it uh, fueled the fire for me to, you know, to kind of prove that, you know, I was much better than a fifth round draft pick. And, um, you know, and that's another reason why I wanted to, to you know, to play baseball. But uh, I was going to give baseball a chance and see if, how things would work out. And if it didn't work out, I would have gone, go, go, you know, the University of Florida and play football. But uh, thank God it worked out the way it did. Not a bad fallback plan. Uh, when speaking to Tim Raines, if you just tuned in, you head to the Gulf Coast League for rookie ball as a 17-year-old. You have a good season there. You move up to single A the following year and continue up the Expos minor league ladder, showing improvement each and every year. You get called up in September from double A as a 19-year-old. That team, it's interesting, is managed by Dick Williams and had a really Really strong veteran presence on that team. Dave Cash, Rusty Staub, Tony Perez, Woody Fryman, Duffy Dyer, and, and Rudy May, as well as a bunch of rising stars in Gary Carter, Andre Dawson, and Ellis Valentine. What do you remember most about that September, which is also interesting because you call up a player, you think you'd give him an at-bat, but all you got to do that year was pinch run six times. Well, I, you know, they told me that's what I was going to do before they even called me up. So, I mean, I was in double-A. We were in the playoffs, and there was an opportunity for me to um, to uh, leave a, a day early because uh, we're in the playoffs. We were in the playoff uh, game. Um, I let off the inning. We were down a run. I let off the inning, stole second, stole third, and then stole home to tie the game up. To go into extra innings, we ended up going extra innings, ended up winning that game. So I had to stay an extra day before I was called up to the big leagues. Uh, that's something I think I don't think too many people knew, but uh, it was it was um, it was a situation uh, where I knew I was going to be called up. I knew what they was going to ask me to do. Obviously, I felt like I wasn't prepared to play uh, at the major league level, uh, but I was fully really ready to run. Uh, the basis, but um, it was it was it was quite uh, an experience being just being called up to the big leagues. I didn't even wasn't uh, expecting it to happen so fast, and uh, but once it happened, I was up there. I got an opportunity to you know to meet all the guys. Uh, you know, at the age of nineteen, uh, being in the big leagues was something that I didn't, didn't feel like it was going to happen so fast. So what was it like? Being the big leagues, even for a short period of time, in a different country. <laughs> have, you, have you ever been you know, that far north? Have you ever been to Canada before? Have you ever been to Montreal? And what was it like, not only being in the major leagues, but being in, in Montreal, which is a city unlike Toronto, which is very much like a U.S. city. Montreal has has the French component to it. It's a very different city. Right. It's certainly a lot different than Florida in September yes. as well. Yes, <laughs> so definitely. I mean, you know, 
Um, I, I wasn't ready. <laughs> I was not ready for that, you know, to go there. Um, and, and one have a uh, issue with the, the language. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, it was tough because, you know, a lot of people didn't, didn't speak English uh, only because I only spoke English. I, I think a lot of them spoke English, but unless you tried to speak French, they wouldn't even attempt to speak English. So uh, I had a tough time. I mean, um, I hung out with the players as, as often as I could. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Ellis Valentine took me in. I stayed with him for that that month of uh, that season, and um, you know uh, I, I stayed pretty close to the guys that could speak English. <laughs> <laughs> you get a better look the following season, where you actually played briefly as a second baseman for the Expos in 1980. You know, but then soon they switched you to outfield. Who was it that thought you'd be better fit for the team as an outfielder? Because you played most of your minor league career as an infielder. Well, I played all my minor league career as an infielder. I played second uh, from day one to uh, even my last day of, of, of AAA. Uh, and I think the reasons why they moved me to the outfield, we had a second baseman, Rodney Scott, fantastic second baseman, probably a much better second baseman than I was, uh, with a lot more experience. And as a matter of fact, Ron LaFleur was our left fielder at the time. And uh, that year, my rookie season, uh, LaFleur became a free agent and went to Chicago White Sox. And it left uh, the left field job open. So I think what happened was I went to the Dominican Republic to play water ball uh, that off season before that next year. I played second the whole uh, winter league, but what they did was they brought some guys down to I worked at the outfield uh, in between uh, doing batting practice, but I never really played the outfield during the game, so when it came to spring training, it was the first time I actually played actual games uh, in the outfield uh, as a professional player, and that's pretty much where I learned how to play the outfield in spring training. Unbelievable. You have a breakout year, your official rookie year, which was a strike-interrupted in, uh, 1981 season. About 304, set a then-Major League Baseball rookie record, 71 stolen bases, breaking the previous mark of 56 steals set by Gene Richards. You're caught stealing for the first time in 1981, having begun your, began your career with a Major League record, 27 consecutive stolen bases. You know, base stealing is truly an art form one of which is really fading away from today's game. Aside from speed, what is the most important skill that a base stealer needs to have? Well, I think um, not only speed, but quickness and reaction time. Their reaction to what a pitcher uh, does if he goes to the plate or to a first base is very important. You know, I think it's, it's, it's also important to react to what you see and and the quicker you react to what you see, the quicker you are getting out of the blocks or getting back to first base. And I think that's something that it's kind of hard to teach, but, you know, when you tell these guys the most important things, uh, those are the things they have to kind of figure out themselves. I mean, there is some technique, uh, but there's different ones. I mean, as um, my career went on, and if you saw the way the way I won that stealing base, stolen bases, as well as the way Ricky Henderson won that stolen bases, was totally different. Even though we both were successful doing what we did, so that's why uh, when it comes to me working with uh, kids uh, to become uh, effective uh, in stealing bases, 
I try to I try to work with what they have, what what they're what better at. You know, it's it's kind of hard for them to say, okay, do it the way I did it, and, and you'll be successful. Uh, sometimes it doesn't really work that way. I try to look at what they do best and try to work with that. You know, it's interesting because you're runner up for the National League Rookie of the Year award in 1981, and it, just in saying that, it's a little scary for me because I remember vividly being in a Met dugout interviewing Mookie Wilson and Yubi Brooks and talking to them about, you know, their chances at a rookie of the year, you know, against you and Fernando Valenzuela. Um, you know, you look at Fernando Mania and all that went with it. Do you think that if you had played in a different marketplace than Montreal, you know, that it, it, if it was actually switched, if Fernando was in Montreal and you were in L.A., do you think you would have won that Rookie of the Year award? I think so. I think so. I think, uh, you know, a lot of times it comes down to, you know, um, popularity. And, and I think when you look at the two teams, Montreal and you look at L.A., it's definitely going to be. Uh, and, and exposure. I mean, I didn't, I didn't get to, to be on many uh, games of the week. Uh, I think I might have had maybe one or two in my first year uh uh, in the major leagues, but I mean, in LA was, and, he, and, and not to take anything away from Fernando, I'm saying Fernando had a season, but I felt like uh, there's a difference between a, a, a guy that pitched once every five days and a guy that played every day. Yeah. Uh, but it came down, I felt like, uh, uh, you know, popularity, and he was definitely uh, a player that. You know, a lot of fans want to go see. I mean, he's a great pitcher, and uh, it was it was going to be a tough call. But I mean, I just felt like you know, the the vote, uh, it was going to be tough for me to overpass that. It's interesting because you mentioned you know how many times you were on national television with the Expos, and I remember Fernando. I think every start, basically from the All Star game forward. You know that fell on a Monday night. They were the Monday night baseball game. It was crazy. The, the same thing happened when Mark Fidrich went on that role. The Tigers were always on. Um, you know, it's interesting because lots of guys that have careers like you write books, and a lot of them leave out parts that you know might tarnish some of their legacy. But you not only you know really go deep with you know your drug issues, but you basically start out the book and, and kind of say that. You know, missing that game because of drugs might have been the best thing that ever happened to you. Because had you not missed that game, you probably would have continued to try and fool people. I probably would have killed myself one way or the other. Why was it so important for you not only to include that in your book, but really kind of make it the starting point of your book? Well, it was a part of my career. I think uh, not only that, uh, it was. It was a situation I felt like that happened to me told because there probably could have been tons and tons of people that would probably have been in the same situation that might not have come out uh, the same as I did. Or maybe in in a situation right now, like, you know, uh, you know it happened early in my career. Uh, I felt like uh, if I would have got past that, none of this would have happened. So um, it, it, it kind of made me so much quicker than I, you know, maybe I, I would have. Uh, but not only having, you know, an issue, but also having teammates that uh, sat by my side 
You know, it's interesting because once the drug issue was behind you, you start putting up numbers that lead to Cooperstown. 83, you steal the career high of 90 bases. Um, you're the Expos player of the year in 83, 85, and 86. Each season from 81 to 86, you steal at least 70 bases. Career high, 334 batting average in 86, winning a National League championship. You maintain a consistently high on base percentage. Uh, the one thing that always shocks me about your career is that you never won a gold glove. And I always thought of you back in the day as one of the best defenders in the game and a guy that you would never run on either. Does it surprise you that you never won a gold glove? No, it didn't because back in those days, the only guys that won golden glove were center fielders. <laughs> uh, if you look at the past, right. uh, majority of, of, of the gold glove guys were all center fielders. So, um, you know, I felt like an outfielder, didn't get a true chance of actually trying to win. I, mean, I felt like I should have been going up against left fielders, just like center fielders are going up against center fielders and right fielders. It should be three tips and throw the gloves instead of, you know, taking the guy that. And, and, and most times, outfielders, center fielders only just the captain of what goes on in the outfield. So if they call the ball, they have to take it. So. Uh, I, I never really worried about that, though. I just felt like, uh, as a player, um, you know, you go out and play as a team, team sport, and, uh, you know, regardless of, you know, me winning a Golden Glove or not, it wasn't going to take away from, from my legacy because I felt like I was a team player. And, and my goal not, wasn't so much to, you know, to lead the league in stolen bases or lead the league in, in, in a batting average or, or base, you know, stealing bases or run scored. My goal was to try to help my team, uh, the team that I play for, uh, to win a world championship. And uh, that's the way I went at it day in and day out. You know, it's funny because coming into the studio, AJ I, and Ryan were talking about you know what Bill James said this week yeah. and how you know the, even last year how a bunch of free agents actually had to continue their own little spring training because they weren't getting signed and the way free agency has shifted uh, has shifted a lot, but not as much as you know when you became a free agent in November of 1986. You're 26 years old. You're in the prime of your career. You had six straight All Star games. You led the league in batting average, but yet no team made a serious attempt to sign you. That was during the, the period that Major League Baseball owners acted in collusion to keep salaries down. During that process, how frustrated was it for you? Frustrating for you was it that your you know prime of your career, you're at free agency, and of all the timing, this ha is starting to happen for you. It, it was tough. I mean, I felt like uh, I couldn't have been in a better situation. Uh, to become a free agent and uh, for it to happen, uh, turn out the way it did, I felt like I never got the opportunity to really become a true free agent uh, at the top of my game. Uh, it was frustrating. Uh, it was frustrating, not, one, not to go to spring training, but uh, frustrating only to not to go to spring training and miss the first month of the season and, and, and not you know, be a part of uh, the team 
uh, one way or the other. Uh, but I felt like it made me understand that uh, baseball was was uh, not so much just the game, but uh, you know, it was it was, it was you know something that you know the owners got you know control uh, the salaries and it just so happened uh, the year that I felt like would be the best year for me as far as maybe getting a decent contract uh, when uh, it happened. So, uh, but it, 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 didn't, it didn't hamper uh, the way I felt about the game itself. But uh, it definitely was a little tough year for me. It, but it, it probably, I probably ended up having the best year of my career. Yeah. Well, so. Met fans here. And I re- I mean, this happened 31 years ago, but yet I remember it like it was oh. yesterday. I'm watching that Met game, and it's the first that you, you sign a contract, all right, on uh, May 1st, all right, and your first game is against the Mets on May 2nd. No spring training. You haven't even, you know, taken batting practice, okay? No competitive preparation for the season. You hit the first pitch you see off the right field wall for a triple. You finish the game with four hits and five at-bats, Three runs, one walk, a stolen base, and a game-winning grand slam in the tenth inning. And I remember watching that game, and I just said, "Really? I mean, this guy could roll out of bed and, and, and you know hit 300." I, I have to imagine that. And, might... and remember, this was a very good Mets team. Yeah, this was to not win the World Series. And this, and this yeah. is a sport yeah. that relies on the routine of seeing pitches every day yeah. and having it yeah. every I have day. to yeah. imagine that that might be one of the most incredible games of your career. I, I, I probably would say that. And, you know, the one thing about it all, um, I went to batting practice that day, uh, and I, I felt like I didn't. I don't think I got one ball out of the cage. I mean, I could even hit the pitcher uh, in batting practice. I mean, the coaches in batting practice. So I was probably the nervous I've ever been uh, in my career. Uh, one, knowing that it's going to be on national TV. Two, playing the world champion. And, 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 Going up against David Combs, one of the top pitchers in, in the National League at the time, so I felt like, you know, if I just just had a decent game, I would have I would have, you know, had a good day. But um, I just felt when the bell rung, you know, I had to kind of prove myself, and then, you know, and I think uh, what I said earlier, I wanted to prove to to baseball that, you know. By not signing me, you're signing one of the best players in the game at the time. And, and that was a great time to kind of prove that. I remember Tim McCarver going out of his mind during that yeah. game. So, Mark's going to go a little, talk a little bit what happened next when you get traded to the White Sox and then eventually to the Yankees. And I read something that said, really, I don't know if you pushed the trade or prompt because you wanted to get to a winner and get to the World Series. So, how frustrating was to be in basically a really very good Expos team? not make it to the postseason, and how important was it to you that you get traded to a team that, A, was maybe a big market and would, would have a better chance to do other things, invest what had to be done in the team, and then make it to the World Series? Well, my thinking was this. You know, at the time that I, I left, it was, it was kind of ready to be the beginning of, of a rebuild. You know, and I had already had 11, close to 12 years uh, in Montreal. I the White Sox had just um, come off of of having a good season, and it was a very young team: Frank Thomas, uh, Ventura, 
a great young pitching staff. And I just felt like that was a great opportunity for me uh, to get in a situation that would be better than the situation I was about to be in in, in Montreal. Uh, so I kind of went to them and said, you know, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time here in Montreal, and I just felt like uh, my chances of me getting an opportunity to play in the World Series would be lessened than the chance if, if, if I would have went to Chicago, and, and that's the reason why I asked for the trade. And that season, the White Sox season, you know, ironically, I mean, the the strike wiped out the White Sox, who had the best, you know, had one of the best records in baseball, and the Montreal Expos, yeah. your former team, right. Uh, right. both right. get wiped out. You know, the chance at postseason that year. Um, two things, and, and then we want to talk about the uh, Hall of Fame before we let you go. Two pretty unique opportunities with the White Sox. You get the opportunity in spring training. Um, to have a guy join the White Sox with spring training, a guy who was the best basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan. What was that like, having Jordan around for spring training? It was awesome. It was awesome for me. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure if anyone felt like he could just step out of off the basketball court and, 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 and step onto a baseball field and, and be uh, effective. Um, it took him a while to get adjusted, uh, but I felt like all in all, he did, he did a pretty good job to not play baseball for, you know, more than, you know, 11 or 12 years since he was maybe more than that. since he was in high school yeah. to step on a baseball field at the at professional level, let alone at the major league level and, and uh, compete the, the way he competed. But I mean, he's a great athlete, uh, Great basketball player, and and obviously he he proved that uh, baseball isn't as easy as it as it seems for us sometimes. But it's a tough sport to uh, to play, and um, uh, but it was a lot of fun. It was definitely a lot of fun. It was, it was great to one get the opportunity to be around him, you know, doing spring training, but uh, get to see one of the greatest basketball players uh, attempt to play baseball. <laughs> You get two World Series rings with the Yankees. You move on to the A's. You're signed back by the Expos, um, and you, you get to return that year and have a really nice year. Then there's a trade to the Baltimore Orioles, which allows you the opportunity to play a Major League Baseball game with your son. On October 4th, uh, your son played center fielder, played center field, and you played left field for Baltimore, becoming the second father and son team to play for the same Major League team. It's interesting because AJ and I are currently writing a book about fathers and sons in baseball. Uh, we've spoken to a lot of sons who have followed their, in their father's footsteps. Not many get the chance to be in the same lineup. So I have to imagine that that had to be a very special moment for the two of you. What do you remember most about that day and what it meant to the two of you? Oh, it meant a lot to me. Um, you know, probably the biggest, most special moment uh, in my career, I mean, and we're talking about, you know, winning two world championships and, and all the other things that I did, um, you know, individually. Uh, you know, having a chance to play with your kid is something that I don't think anyone even thinks about uh, once they start playing baseball. And then not only that, uh, the kid being around or you being around long <laughs> enough, but, you know, for your kid to make it to the major leagues. Uh, we never really talked about it until uh, actually uh, that year. Uh, 
you know, and what I think about the most, uh, they came to me, I was with the Expos, we were in Miami, they came to me and they asked the question, you know, if you got a chance to, to uh, be traded to Baltimore, would you like to go? And I thought it was just a joke uh, at the time. And didn't really think that. So I told him, I said, guys, don't, don't mess around with me about that because, you know, if it, you know what that answer would be. Uh, so they actually said, no, we're not sure yet. We'll let you know the next day. And they called me the next morning and said they got the deal done. Uh, the cool thing about it was my son didn't know anything about it. Oh, wow. So um, we ju- I jumped on a flight to Baltimore. Uh, by the time I got there, the team was on the field getting, uh, getting ready for the game. So I went in, got my uniform on, and uh, went out on the field. And as my son was getting ready to, to do his sprint before, I mean, in pregame, uh, I rolled out in, in my uniform, and it was like he saw a ghost when he saw me in, <laughs> in the uniform. So that was pretty cool. It's probably the coolest thing uh, that I ever really uh, been through uh, because, like I said, it's, it's, it's something that you don't really think about. Um, you don't feel like it's going to happen because, one, you're a player and you don't have control of where you play a lot of times and, and uh, who you play with. But uh, getting that opportunity not only was special for me and my son, but also, um, you know, knowing that the Expos and the Orioles uh, give us that opportunity to do it. Absolutely. And, and we're going to use all of that in the book, mm-hmm. trust right. me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let, let's talk a little bit about the 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 ten year battle to get you to the Hall of Fame, and it starts off. And, and you know, one of the arguments against that is that people should deserve the Hall of Fame first, and not. But the arguments to have it go on, have somebody been the ballot for ten years, takes a player like you. You started off with twenty four percent of the vote, and over the course of the ten years, you finally built up the necessary seventy five percent. Eighty six percent. Eighty six percent in the last year of eligibility on the ballot. Right. And when you were inducted to the Hall of Fame, basically you credited analytics for basically for doing the groundswell that it got the vote up for you, and you gave credit uh, to a, an author in pocket named Jonah Carey. So, mm-hmm. what, what actually happened? Do you feel that got you over the line? What was the what did the numbers show to let everybody see the type of player that you were? And just so you know, this is a, an argument that AJ and I consistently have. Okay. Like for me, Tim Raines was a saint. You know, Tim Raines. You know, body of work. You did not get one more hit over that ten years. You did not play one more game. Right, Your stats right. were the That's same true. the day you retired. That you know they were Hall of Fame worthy that day. You know why does it take ten years? So, so and, yeah. And, and I think the other way. I understand sometimes it takes that extra period of time for people to truly understand yeah, and appreciate somebody yeah. and appreciate somebody's place. Yeah. And how tough is it as a player knowing that your body of work is Hall of Fame worthy and have to go through that process? Well, it was, it was tough. I mean, you know, when I when I left baseball uh, after I retired, I never really thought about it, you know, personally. Uh, I knew I had a good season, had career, and and I never really thought about the Hall of Fame and the numbers and all of that stuff. I was never a numbers guy. Uh, looking back at it, I wish I probably would have would have made sure if, if you know that I would have got in because I'd have been a little more. Uh, a little more selfish, you know. I think that's one thing that uh, I think uh, 
when it comes to thinking about being in the Hall of Fame, if I would have been a little more savvy, I probably would have stolen off a lot more bases. I probably would have uh, tried to do a few more things to to make sure that it wouldn't have been an issue. But I never really thought about it that way. Uh, but once it was it was over, and uh, I, I I got enough to uh, stay on the, after the first year. Um, I felt like, wow, that was that was good enough for me <laughs> to know that you know I got enough to, to stay on for the for the next year, and then I got more the year after, and, and, and got more. And then as the years went on, um, Andre Dawson gave me a call. He said, he said, uh, call me home. He said, homie, uh, don't worry about it. Uh, you're gonna get in. It might, might, might be a while, but you're going to get it. Don't worry about, you know, when it's going to happen, it's going to happen. So I believe in him. <laughs> I don't think he's ever told me anything that was wrong. So um, I didn't really think about it, you know, and uh, it, it ended up happening. So um, but what I said, you know, uh, analytics, uh, because I think, as baseball is going on, analytics is probably the one thing that most teams today uh, are building their teams on. Absolutely. Uh, and it's so much more important, uh, the analytics, than, than all the other stuff that comes with baseball. So I think uh, now the reporters are starting to understand uh, what analytics is all about. Uh, I think knowing that and and the reporters, you know, I think you're starting to get a few more younger reporters that are having the opportunity to vote. I would say the old school guys probably wouldn't look at it as hard as uh, the new school guys. So uh, that's why I said um, it, it played a role. Uh, I wish it wouldn't have, but it really did. And, uh, you know, playing in Montreal, I think, uh, uh, had a lot to do with it as well. Uh, For sure. Not being, not being as noticed. Uh, you could see the numbers, but you didn't really see the player. So, um, and it played a role as well, I think. You know, I really, truly thank you so much for your time tonight for multiple reasons. One, you were one of my favorite players of all time. Two, I got to wear my Montreal Expos jersey tonight in honor of you. Um, still, <laughs> still one of my prized autograph photos is a, a photo autographed by you Andre Dawson and Gary Carter. Even though you know a tremendous Met fan, those three Expos were just like they were it, man. They they were like they those were the guys you wanted on your team. So, Rock, thanks so much for your time tonight. Congratulations. You know it's a year late. You know we didn't get to speak to you then, but congratulations on your induction to the Hall of Fame. And thanks so much for being with us tonight. Oh, no problem, man. And thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. You got it. And, and you'll uh, expect a call from AJ and I. We want to yeah. talk to you more about the father and son thing for our book. Okay. No problem. You got it. Thanks, Timmy. Tim, Rock Reigns, uh, Hall of Fame, okay. class of 2017. So.